This is KDLL, 91.9 FM, Kenai, Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned in to the Kenai Conversation. I'm Hunter Morrison. This week on the Kenai Conversation, we're sharing a Kenai Peninsula College showcase presentation titled Three in the Far North pack rafting and hunting in Arctic Alaska. The presentation from November 16th follows Ben Meyer, Maura Shoemaker, and Buck Coons in their three-week journey via pack raft down the Sag River in Alaska's Brooks Range. A Q&A session follows the presentation. So, uh, really happy to hear the, um, these guys went on this raft trip and I was very envious um, and I uh, was very glad that they were going to come and do this trip here. And so uh, Ben Meyer, um, Maura Shoemaker, and Buck Kuntz, a lot of you folks know them, and this is going to be a very interesting uh, presentation tonight, and I really appreciate you guys coming, so thanks. I finally get to talk about hunting in a public space, so uh, thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, yeah, thanks. For, we're all we're, we're honored and flattered that you guys all drove in these treacherous conditions to come out to hear about our backcountry trip. So uh, my name is Buck Coons. My family runs the Mike's Welding Shop out in Sterling. This is my wife, Maura Schumacher, and our good friend, Ben Meyer. Um, so to start, I just want to give a little bit of backstory as to who we are and how we know each other and what inspired this trip. Um, I grew up hunting with my dad on the Swanson River ever since I was four years old. Um, he would take us down the canoes and we'd camp for about a week or so and, and do some moose hunting. But for six years or so, we didn't get a moose because my dad was focused on teaching me how to do it and raising me on how to hunt. But of course, that like hindered his chances of getting a moose. Um, so I appreciate that, Dad. <laughs> um, so finally, when I was 10 years old, uh, I got the chance. Uh, to shoot one, but I was too afraid, and my, I let my dad shoot it instead. So uh, then the same thing happened at 11 years old. You know, <laughs> big animals. So uh, I was too afraid again, so I let him shoot it again. And then finally, when I was 12 years old, I got the courage to, to pull the trigger. So I got my first moose when I was 12. Um, but after that, I'd kind of fallen out of hunting. You know, I turned into a teenager. I got into really playing soccer and playing sports and then cars and skateboarding and girls and um, so I kind of stopped hunting with dad for a while there and then I, I went I went on to play soccer at a junior college and um, got my associate advice degree moved back to Soldatna and decided I was going to take a year off and work for my dad to save up money and I was just I was kind of I was a little lost um, you know, not having a direction of what I want to do with life. Um, working for dad, all my friends were at school, off, off away in college, so I was kind of lonely. So I decided, and, and I miss competing, I miss playing sports and soccer, and I thought I just need to do something, uh, do some soul searching. So I decided to do a, a solo sheep hunt in the Kenai Mountains. And I, uh, at 21 years old, and I, uh, did two and a half or three days of 10 plus mountain miles hiking, looking for sheep. Uh, I had great weather, I just had an amazing time. I saw my first wolverine, saw the biggest black bear I'd ever seen, and after two and a half days of chasing sheep, I, I found a legal ram and I, I was able to get it. So there I was uh, at sunset, looking over the Kenai River drainage, uh, my home basically, and um, with this full curl legal ram in my hands, and uh, that changed my life. But, you know, they talk about getting the sheep hunting bug, and uh, I caught it real bad. And uh, I, I just, like, that, uh, that sense of accomplishment, and like, I was just really proud of myself, and for a 21 year old to kind of do something like that, it just changed my life. And, Kind of put me on a path of outdoor adventure and hunting um, for years to come. And I was able to do <clears throat> one with my dad, 
Uh, I got to watch him and help him get probably what would be his last ram, which was re really meaningful. But, uh, but then I went on a bit of a drought. Um, I went like 11 years or so. And then, uh, so fast forward 11 years and I started dating Maura. <laughs> and uh, we started dating in April and we had a really great first summer of dating. And I quickly learned that she's a very avid outdoors woman, uh, very knowledgeable and very capable. So I thought, well, we gotta go on a sheep hunt. Like, if we're gonna really find out what this woman's made of, we're gonna go, we should go on a sheep hunt. <laughs> and that would be a really good test to our relationship, how compatible we are, how we do in the backcountry and how we handle challenges together and everything. Um, so we, we ATV'd, uh, that's so great. so that's on Cecil Mountain, there's a little goat friend we had. Um, but we ATV'd back into the Alaska mountain range, 30 miles, and uh, we hiked up a drainage five or six miles and we, we found some sheep, but nothing was legal. And uh, we had to come back and we had to backtrack and pull up the map and decide, we all we need to go up this other creek about a mile and before we hit another drainage up the mountain. And we had to strip down to our underwear and put our Crocs on and do like 18 creek crossings. And it was, uh, it was that moment um, after about our, our ninth creek crossing, uh, I saw my girlfriend in the middle of the creek with her Crocs on, with her stone glacier pack on and her underwear. And I just, it was like pouring down rain and I just thought, oh, Got a really good feeling about this. <laughs> I had a lot of feelings going on, but I had a really good feeling that we were going to get into some sheep. And um, so we got into the Alpine that night. The clouds lifted, and we saw some rams on the top of the mountain right before we went to bed. The next morning, we woke up, determined that one was legal, and it took us all day to make a stock on it, but uh, we were able to get a ram, and I got my second ram. Uh, it's been like 11 years or 12 years since I got one. But so it was, it was Maura's first ever hunt that she'd ever been on, which was really special. Um, so I'd say she got kind of spoiled. <laughs> Most people go their whole lives, or some people go their whole lives without even getting a ramp. So uh, it was after this trip that I knew that she was 100% marriage material. <laughs> so we had gotten back from we had gotten back from our, our trip a couple weeks later and we decided to do a little pack rafting trip on Granite Creek and Mora had already had a, she owned a pack raft but I hadn't, I didn't know too much about them and uh, but the pressure was on, like hard for me to buy one. Um, there was like a handful of other like single uh, handsome men in the community that had pack rafts and Mora had mentioned the comment, she said, well, you just better get a pack raft, or you're gonna get left behind. And I didn't really know what she meant by that. Was I gonna get dumped, or am I gonna get left on trips, or what? So I started doing a little research on on pack raft. So um, more, I knew somebody who had a boat that I was interested in, and we did this first little float, and I loved it. So. Um, it was that winter, of course, it's like winter, you get bored, you start doing research on what your next hunting trip might be or what your next tool or toy might be. So I just dove into the, the, the pack rafting research and, and found out that I wanted to get uh, the Alpaca Forager, which is this boat right here. Uh, it's 10 feet long, it's, it weighs 14 pounds, and it can carry a thousand pounds. So it is about the biggest pack raft you can buy. And um, so, between yourself, your gear, uh, and a, you can fit a whole moose in there roughly with you and your gear. Um, and these are really cool. When you before you inflate the boat, you can unzip the zipper, and you can put your your like soft camp gear in there, um, which saves a lot of space on the deck space. And then you can strap your pack to the front of the boat, and then you kind of sit in the back. And it's a super comfortable boat. The the pontoons kind of surrounds you to help you like maneuver your boat and you can sit on the floor and then lean your back against the backrest and it's a really comfortable boat it really handles white water really well and can carry a lot of weight um, so 
I had uh, I had gotten my pack wrapped, and uh, let's see, um, Maura wasn't going to leave me anymore. Uh, <laughs> so I, was, I went into that winter feeling really good. So I thought, well, what a good time to propose. <laughs> so I proposed to Maura in November, and we all we had all winter to plan a pack plan a wedding. Sorry, uh, <laughs> plan a wedding and a pack wrapping trip. Um, so the I really started doing the research at that point, and the first thing on our list was to find a wedding officiant. And Maura and Ben had worked for a few years together at the Kenai Watershed Forum, and they developed a really good working relationship and a really good friendship. And um, I got to know Ben a little bit. We got to go on a few little outdoor adventures together, and and it was pretty obvious like Ben's our first choice. So we had went on a few little ice skating, early season ice skating trips uh, that winter, and I noticed that Ben didn't have a, a, a good ice pick for testing ice, so I had made him one in the welding shop, and we presented him with this ice pick to, to gesture, and like as we asked him to be our wedding officiate, and he gladly accepted. Um, so as the wedding planning continued uh, throughout the winter, my mind would start to drift and wander, and get lost into the mountains and the next hunting trip or the next thing we're going to do with our pack rafts and it it started becoming obvious that the Brooks Range is a really great place to to do this type of adventure um, there's a there's a lot of different resources people like putting blog posts and videos together of doing float trips in the Brooks Range and it's also a really good place to hunt too so um, I kind of ran the idea by Maura, like, hey, do you think we can take two weeks off in August, right before our wedding, to do a, a pack rafting trip in the Brooks? And she said, yeah. And so I really confirmed that I was marrying the right woman at this point. <laughs> so our wedding day was September 2nd, and we knew it was going to be a feat to, to get all our busy summer work done, plan a wedding, plan a, a two-week hunting trip and so it was it was starting to get a little stressful but thanks to we started to think about who we want to invite along and like you know we can't do this by ourselves or it's not probably safe to just do this with two people so uh, we knew we wanted somebody who had some hunting experience somebody with some pack rafting experience and who was just a good outdoor savvy person and Ben was the first person to think about inviting and uh, <laughs> um, Really glad we did. Ben, ben is a really awesome planner and a really savvy outdoor guy. And I'm kind of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. And I don't really write things down. I don't, you know, make lists or anything. But Ben was able to just like totally help with all that. Um, and also more than ever planning a wedding. So we were just like fried at the end of our rope as far as planning goes. So um, we really appreciate Ben and all his help putting this trip together. Um, so as I was doing more research, I had been to the I had been to the Brooks Range and done one trip prior on the Sag River and the and the, the Ibishak River area. And that was my first choice um, was to I, I had read one blog post that a group two brothers had hiked sixty miles in from the road. We've got the road on the left and they hiked 60 miles into the Ibishak where that yellow dot is and and then they floated back to the road and I, that was like 60 miles by the time we get there like all our food's going to be gone by the time we carry all this gear so that wasn't really an option so we looked at flying into there's a little lake you can land a float plane in there and then it was going to be about a 15 mile hike to the headwaters and I thought well that would be a great trip we can we can hike we can camp do some backpacking and then raft and hunt um, but the only outfit we could find to fly us there was like $2,200 for a one-way and it was only about a 30-minute flight to get back there so we soon realized it's like all right we got to do this ourselves we got to we got to find a hike-in route that we can save some money and and do it kind of a human-powered style trip so this day and age it's like researching um, an area to go has never been easier with tools like Onyx and Google Maps and especially with the 3D feature on Onyx and also along with the Brooks Range like 
there's not a ton of trees north of the Arctic Circle um, or north of the Brooks Range, so you don't have to worry about like maneuvering through old burn areas or anything like that. And other than like the spongy tundra right in the middle of the drainages, once you get up and gain some elevation into some, you get into good hard mountain ground, so the walking's really easy. So there's just a ton of different routes that you can take. And I mean, like turn the 3D feature on Onyx and just double check that you're not gonna get clipped out somewhere. And you, there's a ton of lakes to fly into, a ton of villages to fly in and out of. Um, so things were looking really good. So I had started doing some more research on like what was next, what was our next opportunity? So we did find a nice video in a blog post that somebody had hiked in from the road and into the headwaters of the Sag River and pack rafted out. And that looked really doable. It was about a 20 mile hike from the road to where we, you could start floating. Um, the only caveat was, was once you kind of got closer to the road, there got to be some pretty big rapids. And so that was kind of in the back of my mind. I was kind of like, I don't know. It's like right at the edge of my comfort level. And so I had been doing a lot of research, but I didn't want to like put anybody into a, a scenario where they didn't get to research it themselves. And they, I, I, so I, I like pulled together some blogs and some videos and I asked Moran Ben to take a look at this stuff. I want you two to determine if this is something that you're comfortable with. And we all kind of agreed that this was, we we're all on the same page. Like, so this guy had wrote up a lot of different routes for like uh, like available routes to do and then he pinpointed on the on the map like where all the big rapids were where there was a, a, a portage area that you had to portage around and he also um, listed what like the water level gauge was doing at the trip too so um, as you can see here um, this is a, a CFS reading of what the how fast the river is moving, how much water is moving into the river, basically, and uh, so this was this was what it looked like when we floated it. And in his blog, he listed that 5,000 cfs was what he ran the river at, which was like a pretty medium water level. So we thought, okay, let's we want to keep our eye on that, and because this river can flood and get to 10,000, 15,000 cfs. So we really had our eyes on that as we were like planning the trip and getting closer to doing it, and. Um, so we kind of left August 6th for our trip and and we saw that the, the level was falling so we were floating it really at August 14th right around its lowest time frame and we got out just in time luckily because it did jump back up to 10,000 CFS again so uh, we kind of timed it perfectly. Um, so for, for me hunting's always been about uh, it's an excuse to get outside and unplug and see some new country and go on a really cool adventure. And getting an animal was always just a really good bonus. So uh, it's really helped me kind of fill the void of like not playing soccer, not competing. I get to compete against myself and I get to challenge myself. I get to compete against other hunters and, and try to go into areas that no one else might even think about or be even capable of going. Um, and with this trip, we're planning on hiking 20 miles into the Sag River drainage and through my research, I knew that people could uh, access the river right here, the Adigan River, and they can do that a road-to-road -road float. Um, so I knew that like that area was really crowded, but I, I did a lot of research. I looked like through Google Earth, there was no airstrips in that drainage. And I just had a feeling that we weren't gonna see a single person back there if we could get back there. If, if we were dumb enough to carry 90 pounds on our back for 20 miles, to go into an area that I don't think anyone's going to be. So I was having like just like check all the boxes for a really cool outdoor backpacking hunting adventure. So Moore and I had bought a cattle or camper <clears throat> earlier that summer, and we loaded up and we were ready to hit the road. So thanks for getting all that gushy stuff out of the way, Buck. You know I'm not going there. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. It was time for a road trip. It's a long way up that road from Solbatna, uh, 16 hours. I think it probably ended up being like more like 20, 25 hours. Um, we made the decision to take two separate vehicles up there. 
Um, ben had kind of had hopes that maybe we could fit into one, we could do some hitchhiking, but as Buck mentioned, we, by the time we were getting back, there was like a week before our wedding, so I wasn't gonna risk not being able to flag a ride. So we drove two vehicles um, all the way up to the top. Uh, we made a pit stop in Fairbanks. Um, you can see there on the left, do some last minute route planning. Um, I know Buck said that he had given us some blogs to read and I said I read them, but I was kind of consumed with wedding planning. So it wasn't until we were driving um, that I really started to think about the, uh, the rapids that we were gonna be encountering and it, I started to get nervous. So I did a lot of reading on uh, pack rafting on the way up the road. Um, we also encountered a lot of smoke. This was about the time this summer where fires were really flaring up in the Fairbanks area. So it was very smoky um, for much of our drive. Um, yeah, there's us hitting the Arctic Circle, driving across the Yukon River there. Um, and then lots of pipeline. If for those of you, maybe you all know, for those of you who don't know, I wasn't, I knew, but I didn't really know, like, that road is next to the pipeline the entire time. It's a pretty wild sight if it's something that, that you've never seen before. Um, on our way up, Buck and I listened to the podcast Midnight Oil. If you've not listened to it, highly recommend it. It goes into great history on the building of the road, the Dalton Highway, um, and then the building of the pipeline. Some amazing Alaska history. Highly recommend that if you haven't listened to it. Um, yeah, just more pipeline scenery from the highway. Um, getting gas was an interesting thing along the way. Um, I think it was about seven seven fifty per gallon was what what the gas was up there, which is strange because you're you know driving next to the pipeline that's flowing with oil. Um, we were here. We see Ben doing some yeah. He had printed off maps, we ended up not bringing them, but we were piecing those together on the hood, trying to figure out where we were going. Um, this is where we ended up starting our hike from. The Roche Monton Creek is kind of the drainage that, that we decided to take up. There's us kind of like celebrating a little preemptively, excited to maybe be out of the car, I think. Yeah, getting some stretches in, doing some more last minute route planning, make sure we had everything on our phones that we needed to find our way. Um, and this is us, you know, working up the courage to put our packs on. I think we sat in the parking lot about 20 minutes all ready to go, just kind of, you know, um, gearing ourselves up to start hiking. Um, I think Ben and Buck probably had 90 pounds. I think mine was about 75. Um, I had it easier. They were both carrying firearms. Um, but yeah, they were heavy packs. Um, yeah, I felt like a turtle on that hike. I have never hiked that slow in my life. Um, yeah, that's us all ready to go. Um, do you want to do a little route thing right now? Or? Is this a good time? I'll just show Yeah, yeah. Um, Ben's going to take us on a little Google Earth tour of as we go along the route to kind of where we were. Um, so this was our put-in. We had already driven our car up the road to where um, the Sagavan-Nirktok River um, meets the road. From now on, I'm just going to call it the Sag River, if that's okay. So here's uh, the view from the road, and I'll just do kind of a quick three-dimensional fly-through along the start of our route. I'm not going to go along each step. And Mohor has some more pictures from this section to share in just a second. Um, so you can see how nice and smooth the landscape is. It's just like walking over a sidewalk, not. Um, at this stage in our journey, we were going through a lot of very squishy tundra. Um, in this kind of imaginary map we're going through, it's just kind of like a snowy, partially frozen surface. But uh, um, I would say with each step I took, I could move, I don't know, maybe like six inches forward. <laughs> um, so I'm going to zoom out now just to show a little bit more what this part of the route looks like. I was showing someone earlier, Buck, you want to grab my um, trekking pole there? Buck and I, on our way up, we invested in some new trekking poles with the, like, the padded feet. 
um, which are really amazing for walking through this kind of um, substrate when you're sinking down into moss. Um, so the part of the route that Moy's going to show a few pictures on now is mostly this red line. So you can see where it says start. We're kind of going through a mountain pass following up along a creek until we get to the pass itself. And then we start descending over the pass, kind of right where there's that kink in the line that's 90 degrees or so. Um, once we got over the pass was when we were really on the lookout for animals um, because we were hoping not to not to have to carry an, an animal up and over the pass. It'd be nicer to look for one on the way back downhill. Um, so I'll click back over to the presentation with the photos. Um, so this is on our way up. This was at our first stop. I think maybe we made it a quarter mile before we needed to drop packs um, and rest our legs. Um, yeah, as I said, the smoke um, from the fires kind of followed us. Um, the smoke was kind of in all of the valleys and it seemed to get like pushed down during the day. It would kind of clear out towards the evening and then it would push down again. Um, there's Ben getting a good stretch in. Um, I learned really quick, well maybe not quick enough, that when you're setting down to rest, always find a place where you can set your pack up high. Um, I spent a lot of time like grabbing it from the ground and having someone else put it on my back for me. So lesson learned. More pictures of hiking up the valley. Bucks always looking for critters. Um, so this was the pass um, that we had to summit and get over um, to get to where the sag was running. Um, I think from probably where we were at, that was like a 2,000 foot climb about. Um, yeah, something like that. Uh, so it was a pretty, pretty big push to get, um, to get up and over. Um, yeah, looking at these photos now, I'm just like, it just does not capture the, the scope of how big everything is up there. Because um, I'm thinking of where we camped way down there, and I mean, that took us a full day just to, to hike there. So it just kind of blows me away, the scope of everything up there really feeling like mountain goats at this point, um, celebrating at the top. Um, and then we got to walk down, which was such a relief. Um, and there's us relaxing at camp. Um, so we were inspired by this book. Um, neither Buck or I brought anything along to read. We found ourselves resting a lot at camp, um, but Ben did bring a book along, so he would read aloud to us in the evenings and the afternoons, which was really lovely. It's been a long time since I've been read to, um, so that inspired the title of our presentation. Oh, and then we came across our first critter. It was a porcupine, which was really strange to see up there. It was, he was fun. He was fun to watch. It was alarming. I think I like left camp to go pee, and then bam, little guy running around. Um, so this was Buck um, denoting in his photos um, that we were at the west fork of the Sag River. Um, so this big valley was going to lead us to the Sag River. And then, yeah, you can see down that valley, um, kind of way at the end there, um, that's where the Sag River is. Um, there were some points in time where I kind of I was getting a little crabby from carrying so much weight and at this point I really love looking at flowers and at this point in time everything had kind of gone away for the season like the flowers had bloomed and I came across this flower and I said Buck will you please take a picture of that flower on your phone and whenever I'm getting crabby just show me a picture of that flower so that's what he did. <laughs> Um, lots of blueberries to pick. It was amazing. Every step we took there was blueberries. Um, a great way to fill, fill our breakfasts. Um, which, by the way, we pretty much, with our food packing, it was pretty much all like freeze-dried meals to save on weight. Um, and granola bars, some smoked salmon, and tuna packets. Do you want to take over? Sure. And talk about stock? If you are just tuning in to the Kenai Conversation, you're listening to a November 16th presentation at Kenai Peninsula College that follows Ben Meyer, 
Mora Shoemaker and Buck Coons in their three-week journey via pack raft in Alaska's Brooks Range. Uh, well, thanks Mora and Buck for uh, um, taking us through that first incredible leg of the journey. Um, so we worked really hard over the course of four days to get to this spot that's shown in the photo now. And um, down below there is the Sag River that we were eventually going to float back out on the road to. So if we had just hopped in the water then, you know, and just gone straight through, we could have been back home in two days. But gosh darn, we were going to try to get everything we could out of this trip. So we were finally at a place in a position where we could start to look for a caribou or a sheep. And, uh, you know, I hope Buck really persuaded you at the beginning of this talk that he was serious about it. We did a lot of whispering. We did a lot of tiptoeing around. We did a lot of going up to little uh, knobs and knolls to set up the spotting glass and the binoculars and just kind of sitting there for a good while to see what we could see on the horizon. And so after we got there the first night, we finally got camp set up and had dinner by about 8.30 p.m. And we kind of hopped up to the spot where we're looking at now. We're like, well, it's getting kind of late and dark. And probably won't see an animal right, right away, first thing. But uh, sure enough, after looking through his binoculars for a few minutes, Buck spotted three bull caribou off in the distance. And um, I personally got probably a little too excited. Um, so we... Uh, decided to go head head towards these three bull caribou that were probably about a mile away um, from where we spotted them, and uh, we had to cross a river. I'm showing a picture of me taking my boots off here. The first time I just kind of decided to charge right across in my boots and had wet boots for the rest of the trip. Don't recommend that. Um, and got into a position that was a pretty good place to look through the scope of your rifle towards three very nice bull caribou on the opposite side of the lake. I think uh, estimated them to be about maybe 320 yards away, which was much further away than I would have been comfortable taking a shot. Um, but uh, Strat Doorsman over here got it all set up and all, all positioned and um, we just kind of realized, man, if we if we take one of these animals right now, like that's the end of the trip. Like yeah. we're we're gonna have to, gonna have to, you know, stay up late, clean everything out, and just head back towards the road first thing in the morning. Because once you have meat, you need to start getting it towards refrigeration and processing as soon as possible. And we still had what five or six days left in this trip, so we thought, um, you know, this is a golden opportunity, but we would rather take the time to float this river a little bit more casually and take some more opportunities to look for a caribou sheep as we continue to, to float. Because that'd be a bummer if we just had to rush back to town all of a sudden. Um, but just for fun, we decided to see how close can we get to these caribou. So we started kind of sneaking around the edge of the lake, real careful. And after about an hour of whispering and tiptoeing, uh, sure enough, we got into a spot where there was about about 50 yards away. I mean, that's as close as you're going to get to a caribou. And saw just one little tip of an antler sticking out over the top of a knoll. And so we thought, we'll just sit here for a while, and they'll move, and we'll stand up. And then and then in that moment, we'll decide if, if we really want to end this trip now. Um, and it got started getting a little, not dark, but dusky, a little bit colder and windier. And then whispering, we decided. Let's just see if we can scare one of them a little bit, and then they'll stand up. And uh, short story, about a half an hour later, we saw all three caribou very suddenly bound into the lake instead of stand up and run towards me. So um, they were not in a position where we could decide to uh, take one, even if we did want to end our trip early that way. So lesson learned, caribou are unpredictable animals. Um, it was really fun to kind of have the excitement of getting that close to uh, the caribou though. Um, we saw a sign of lots of animals in this area where we were really looking for the opportunity to hunt. We saw lots of tracks and scat and fur. We saw little bits of caribou fur that looked like they'd been ripped apart by a wolf or something. Um, I don't know how else you would explain it. We found a skull of a mountain goat here. But um, in all of our searching, except for that one first night, all of the 
you know, glassing up and down the mountains and walking up and down the hills. We, for the rest of our trip, we did not find a single other caribou or sheep for the rest of our trip. And it was not for lack of effort. I'll tell you that. That's why it's hunting instead of finding. I'm sure many of you in this room have had similar experiences. Um, so we found this really cool mountain goat skull. What else did we find? Lots of great views, um, lots of blueberries, lots more, you know, moments perched up at the top of gorgeous hills and knobs, taking in the view, looking for the tiniest little glimmer of movement down in the bushes through binoculars, through a spotting scope. Eventually, at some point, we decided it's just time to start our float back home. So here we are heading down to the river. Um, I'll show you this map now. So that is the route that was going to take us back to the road. Um, that's the river, that purple line. Here's this lake I was talking about that the caribou jumped in that I'm circling around now. It was time to hit, not the road, but hit the river. Uh, we brought a little bit of the gear that we're setting up. The buck pointed out this boat here. Um, weighs about 13 or 14 pounds, just the boat itself. And we use um, these inflation bags here to pump it up. Um, this is a bag that you kind of take a big scoop of air and then uh, squeeze it in to the boat through that hole at the bottom. Um, so we took an hour or two to kind of get everything rearranged from walking form to floating form, put little things in bags, get things tied down. Some things went inside the boat if we wanted to make sure they stayed dry or didn't fall out. Um, and eventually we were ready to get on the water. It was a pretty exciting moment to know that we weren't going to have to carry that much stuff on our shoulders for the rest of the trip. Yeah, it was uh, sad to leave all this behind, but we were looking forward to it too. Um, here's a flattering self-portrait with uh, Warren Buck on the back in the background at the very beginning of this trip. Um, <laughs> here was a spot that uh, we had stopped to climb up on a hill, um, and it looks like I got a little distracted by, uh, you know, those crystal, blear, crystal clear blue tropical waters. And yeah, here's a pretty typical view from one of the many spots that we stopped along our float route to look for caribou and sheep. I think it uh, just speaks for itself. Here's some more, more views from a float down that long straight valley there. We got a little bit of rain, but man, I had been up to the Brooks Range before. I worked a little bit for University of Alaska Fairbanks for biology field work in the past, and it was among the most powerful mosquito experiences of my life. Like, you just could not function unless you were fully guarded against mosquitoes. And so that's what I was prepared for. That was what was in my memory bank. But when we did this trip, I didn't have to take out my bug net a single time. Just imagine this view and then imagine it with no bugs. It was unreal. <laughs> hey, and uh, at some point we were like, man, if we're not going to see any hooved animals out there. Maybe there's some with fins and scales. So uh, Buck got out his rod and pretty quickly had uh, demolished a uh, an arctic char and there was a grayling or two later on also. Okay, you're a real fish expert if you know which one of these fillets is an arctic char and which one's a grayling. Okay, I knew we had some in this room. Okay, we have a real kind of dark, uh, dark orange fillet on the right, and then on the left, it's kind of a more gray filet. That's our grayling, and they were both delicious. Um, for a lot of this float route that we did, there were barely, like there wasn't even enough wood to build a fire. Like there just wasn't even enough brush, much less like dried uh, brush that you could use to make a fire. But somewhere along this route, there was like just enough vegetation um, to start building a fire, and uh, we knew that was a good moment to cook up these fish. And again, yeah, we did a lot of this, kind of stopping to hike up hills and see what we could see on the horizon. A lot of amazing views, a lot of incredible landscapes. We knew that uh, there'd certainly been animals through here in the past. Saw a lot of uh, hoof prints from caribou also. And uh, this is the stuff they really love to eat. This is prime caribou chow. This is cotton grass. This is, this is really what they go for. We knew that there was going to be a spot along this route that we probably wanted to portage around instead of try to go through on our boats. It's like it's the type of rapid, maybe if you were a little closer to home, maybe if you were closer to civilization, and if you could really practice it and consider it, you would 
maybe go through Honor Raft, but given how remote this was and how you know cautious we were trying to be, we portage around this rapid. Um, it wasn't too bad. It was maybe like a quarter mile, and as you can see, it's all pretty smooth terrain with no trees or big obstacles in the way, and our boats are just full of air, so no trouble to carry at all. So we managed to do it all in one trip. It wasn't too bad. And uh, so yeah, Buck and I had the same boat. We both had the alpaca foragers, and Maura had a slightly different boat, um, which was the narwhal, right? The, the narmule, the narmule. Um, we knew that there was going to be a point in the trip that there was some rapids. Um, like Buck mentioned, we did a lot of research beforehand to trip tell where there was rapids, both looking at the aerial imagery and where previous explorers had marked these rapids. And uh, you know, through that big long straight section, we thought, hey, there's some real rapids we have to pay attention to here. We're ready. Um, and after we got past that first portage, um, it was pretty difficult to take pictures because it was like six hours straight of some of the most intense white water I'd ever been through in my life. Um, so we saved that all for the last. Um, and so I this this guy, this uh, picture of this cave guy on a log up here is kind of closer to what that experience was like. Um, it, it, it was difficult to take a uh, picture, so I put this up here just to give you a general sense of how it felt at least. <laughs> Um, I didn't have my phone out to take pictures during that section because we were genuinely just like really focused on making sure we stayed upright for a good uh, six hours straight. Um, I'll show you a little bit what that looks like on the map. I'm going to navigate towards it here. Right here I'm zoomed in on that big rapid I showed you a picture of that we portage around. And then downstream from that there's a bunch of spots. Um, that are all marked rapids. Kind of that last section before you get to the road, it says rapid start, and they sure did. So if you get really good aerial imagery, you can even kind of tell where these might be beforehand. Um, like if you zoom in, you can see where there's this little patch of white water. And if you are using a smartphone navigation app like the one Buck mentioned, um, which was Onyx, there's various other options, you can um, look at that while you're out in the field and anticipate them and be ready for them. Um, that's what I thought, at least I felt ready, but man, <laughs> I felt like that cave guy in a log. <laughs> um, so there was about, I don't know, 20 or 30 rapids like that that were all kind of strung together um, right before we got back to the road. Usually the way it works is, you know, if you're descending a river, all the rapids are up high and it kind of smooths out as you go down, and on our particular route, it was the opposite. Um, the other thing that was inspiring us is, at this point in the trip, we got outside of the five-mile corridor of the Dalton Highway. You are allowed to hunt for caribou with a firearm if you're further than five miles away from the Dalton Highway. Um, if you are within that five-mile corridor, it is an archery-only hunt. So we didn't bring archery equipment, so we figured once we got inside this corridor, we were kind of starting to smell the hay in the barn, and we're like, let's get back to our cooler full of non-freeze-dried food back at the truck. Um, I managed to take one decent picture, and it's not even a great picture on this section with the rapids. Does anybody recognize this animal? Kind of murky in the distance there? Kind of hard to see, but that's what he looked like to my eyes, too. That is a muskox. We saw a muskox. He was just kind of standing there looking at us as we floated by. And so somewhere around 11 p.m. we could just smell that, that watermelon I had waiting in the cooler. And we just went for it. Um, our takeout point was right near pump station number three, if you've ever been up on the Hall Road. And sure enough, this is kind of what it looked like through my eyes. Um, we hauled all our gear up to where the truck was parked. Just kind of left it there for the evening. I think uh, one of these guys cooked up a whole bunch of macaroni and cheese. And uh, this is how I woke up the next morning. <laughs> and I think there's just one more picture here. Uh, this, oh no, uh, yep, this is, um, this, is, uh, this is the most important part of our equipment, I guess. I guess you could say the most important part of our equipment was probably our heads, you know, because this trip was great. It was a lot of fun. It was pretty like low, I felt like low risk because I, 
went with smart, experienced friends. We spent a lot of time planning and thinking it through. Um, I can think of much more risky trips much closer to town, and not even because of the train, but because maybe I took less time to think them through and plan them. Um, so this is a great photo just kind of showing the group effort that went into all this from our most important tool, at least in our uh, toolbox. Um, and this is how these guys woke up the next morning. <laughs> I'm there in the background. I'm an honored guest. I was glad to be invited um, and be the officiant. And with that, that is uh, kind of the end of our trip. Uh, I wanted to make sure to take some time for questions. What I was really hoping with this great audience we have here is to hear, well, there's two things I'm hoping to hear. I, I know that some of you guys have done trips like this, maybe even in some other parts of the state, and if there's any of that you want to share, or if there's people that are thinking of doing some kind of adventure, maybe using some of these same tools and toys, um, if you have questions or ideas for how you might go about organizing and planning and inspiring a trip like this, we definitely want to talk to you about it. Um, so with that, thank you so much to uh, Dave and KPC for hosting a great showcase, and we're happy to take some questions, I think. Uh, I see a hand raised in the back, and this is going to work best if I bring you the microphone, so give me just a second so everyone can hear. Just two really quick questions. First of all, was that this summer? And second of all, ONX, is that just ONX? Yeah, we did this trip in August 2023 um, over the course of about two weeks. Um, and there are various apps you can use with your smartphone to help you navigate in the backcountry these days. Um, there's all kinds of fancy tools you can use. You can just use a handheld GPS or even a good old map and a compass. Um, but this particular app, Onyx, is especially popular with the, the people that hunt. Um, and it's useful for both planning routes and seeing on uh, which property parcels you're on to, you know, if you're closer to town to make sure you're not trespassing on private property. Um, yeah, that is what we used for our navigation on this trip. Does that work without a cell connection? Uh, the question was, does that app work without a cell connection? And yes, it did. You can just hit a download button before you lose cell connection and your map and routes will be just saved on your phone. You do not have to have an internet connection. That would be pretty lame if it only worked with an internet connection. I see a couple of other hands raised. Um, I forgot to ask, do you guys have any last things you wanted to add towards the end of this presentation? Okay, I'll just keep handing the microphone around for questions then. I saw you had a question. Did you take a hard copy map with you as well, or did you rely completely on your cell phones? I printed out a version um, of a hard copy map, and I uh, had it laid out on the front hood of my car. I was pretty dissatisfied with the way it turned out, and yeah, we ended up just using our cell phones for navigation. Um, I was a little worried about it. I much would have rather had a hard copy map and a compass to have as a backup. I did have a compass. Um, but yeah, I wish I'd put a little bit more time into making sure that I had a good hard copy map that I liked before I was scrambling to pack everything um, on the last night before we drove up north. There's a couple different ways you can do it, and I did not do them. But um, we uh, were able to navigate successfully everywhere that we went on this trip. We did not have a where are we lost moment on th this trip. I saw a couple other hands raised. I'll bring the microphone over here. How did you uh, keep your cell phones powered? I know you can take little backup power packs, but did you have any problem running out of power? And what did you use for the power backup? I think each of us carried one of those battery packs. Um, but honestly, when, when our cell phones were on airplane mode, they really didn't suck up that much juice. I think maybe Buck was using his phone the most, and he maybe had to repower it once over the course of like eight days. So, not bad. Well, two things again. Um, we actually did a similar trip out of the Brooks Range this last summer too, and we had um, solar panels, just little folding solar panels, and those, those worked really well as well. But I, 
notice that obviously those are too big to have skirts. Are those self-bailing boats? Yes, all of our boats were self-bailers. Yep, lots of the pack rafts that you can get have full white water skirts. Um, we decided with what we needed to pack and for the potential to have like an animal, we wanted the open deck. So a self-bailing boat means that there's these holes in the bottom. These holes in the bottom of the, the boat and then the part you actually sit on is inflated here. So that if water comes into the top of the boat, it doesn't matter, you're just still sitting on the surface. Self-bailing, very clever. Uh, Mark, having been on many sheep hunts and never taken a sheep, um, I was very impressed when you said you solo took that sheep, but you kind of glazed, well, there's no easy sheep. I mean, that's just truth core. And you didn't talk about how far in you were, how you packed that animal out. You go in with a full pack and your arm, and now you're packing out a full sheep. How, how did that go? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I'm not going to hide my area or whatever. There's a couple people who have hunted this area. It's Surprise Creek Trail right in Cooper Landing. Um, Right across from Jim's Landing in Cooper Landing, there's a trail that goes up to Surprise Creek. I think, uh, I wanna say maybe five miles up to where I camped roughly. And then from there, I just did a bunch of like 10 miles or so circles and found the sheep. I, I was carrying way too much gear, so I had to make two trips down. Um, but my pack with just the meat, the skull, the cake, uh, as much food as I wanted to carry back for the day, it was like a, it was probably six miles back to the river, and it weighed 135 pounds when I got back to the truck. And um, luckily, I was only 21 at the time, so <laughs> I could handle it. But um, did that answer your question? No, definitely not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Any other questions? Did did everybody? Uh, he asked, did everybody wear dry suits? Yes, we did all bring our own dry suit and our own life jacket. Um, and we were kind of debating that, you know, do you bring a dry suit and rain gear? You could really just wear your dry suit if it got really rainy out. But uh, we, I think most of us, we, we brought rain gear and dry suits. Pants, jacket, and dry suit. Maybe a little excessive, but. For the, for the rapids that we knew were on this river, we thought uh, safest to bring a dry suit for being that far gone, that far away from from help. Uh, whereas another mild river, I'd probably just feel comfortable in rain gear. But where are you going next? <laughs> uh, I, with all the research that I did throughout this process, uh, there's just a lot of stuff that is out there to be done. There's so many, there's a handful of villages that you can either, that, that offer a daily flight back to either Coldfoot or Fairbanks for super cheap, uh, like a few hundred dollars, and then you pay like 45 cents or 70 cents for your, for your cargo. Um, so it's super affordable to either hike in and float to a village or fly to a village and float to a road. Um, but there's one trip on my mind that is, and I knew once we did this, I was gonna be like, all right, I gotta spend some more time in the brooks. Uh, I think there's an area called the Chandelier Shelf that you can follow a drainage until the river gets big enough to blow up your boat and float to Chandelier Lake and take one of those flights back to Fairbanks or Coldfoot, which looks really appealing and really fun, so. Um, I'll mention one other piece of technology we were carrying with us. Some of you may use an inReach. Uh, before, these are pretty popular these days. A small little device, smaller than your cell phone, it can even connect Bluetooth to your cell phone. Um, you can send a satellite message to a email address or cell phone number. We decided, just being extra safe, that we were going to check in with our safe to check in person at least once a day, or I think we said if you don't hear from us within three days, uh, then you should be worried about it. So thank you, Kari, in the back there for being our check in person. Do I see any other hands raised? 
question is, what did we take for a first aid kit? What did we take for a first aid kit? Um, we were being pretty cautious on weight, so we didn't take like big metal forceps. Um, the things that we were worried about especially were foot care. So we brought um, a lot of uh, moleskin. This is stuff that is just off the shelf in the grocery store that you can use if you're getting hot spots on your feet from hiking all day. Um, I know I used a little bit of it. We brought some athletic tape, brought just some of your basics like band-aids and gauze, neosporin. Um, um, I guess the other kind of general class of injuries we would be worried about would be like blunt force objects, right? Like if a rock falls down a cliff, cliff and rolls into you. Um, so we were prepared to, I don't know, like build a splint if we had to, for example. In a situation like that, we would probably be evaluating like, is it safe to hike out or do we need to call for emergency support in this situation, which we would also be able to use our reach for. Um, yeah, we didn't have a giant first aid kit, but it was carefully considered and thankfully we barely had to use it. We also had helmets. Ben and I chose to pack in helmets for when we were on the rapids. Dry suits, helmets, life jacket, all that stuff you want to carry over a mountain pass 20 miles. <laughs> Yeah, Katie, let me hand the microphone back here. Um, love hearing about your trip, because I remember y'all planning it and talking about all this stuff. Um, so now that you've done this trip, is there anything that you would do differently? Like, would you change, would you bring something that you didn't bring or leave some gear at home? Like, what would you do differently? Um, I overpacked on fuel. I was really nervous because all of our meals were freeze-dried and you kind of like needed to have hot water in order to eat. So I was really nervous about not having enough fuel. We ended up with like three times as much as we needed. I found out they have little like calculations on the things like how many times you need to boil. Um, so those are really accurate. Use those. I used it and then I just said forget it. I'm just going to wing it with way more than I need. So, anything else? This is a place and the time of the year where it could snow also. I came prepared for snow. Thankfully, we didn't see it. I, being the, the hunter geek, I, uh, <laughs> I carried a, a big spotting scope, a tripod, and binoculars. And for a sheep hunt, it's really nice to have a spotting scope. You can determine legality without having to hike super far to get close to, to determine legality with binoculars. So in this type of hunt, I probably would have just picked between one or two. I probably would have like left my binoculars and just brought the spotting scope because these two carried binoculars as well. So we all brought three binoculars and a spotting scope and tripod. So. Any other questions? Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming. Um, thanks again to KPC and to uh, Dave and John for putting on a great event. Can I, should I hand the microphone back to you guys? Do you have any other announcements? Okay. Um, yeah, you guys have any last follow-up things to say? Thank you, everybody, so much for coming, and uh, hope that you are out on your own adventure, too. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. A special thank you to Kenai Peninsula College and to Ben Meyer, Maura Shoemaker, and Buck Coons. The college will host two more lectures in this presentation series. Gasonomics, an evening of blunt economics and humor on the state of natural gas with Larry Persily on November 30th, and Breaking Trail, reflections on the Iditarod with Libby Riddles and Jeff Schultz on December 7th. For more information, be sure to check out Kenai Peninsula College's website. You can hear the Kenai Conversation on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL, or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Hunter Morrison. Thanks for tuning in.